Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode, Murder in Mayberry. It was christened the best town on earth. One visit to Madisonville, Kentucky, and you'd swear you'd stepped into the fictional town of Mayberry. It was a friendly and traditional church-going southern community. Everyone called each other neighbor. No one locked his doors, and crime was unheard of. Then, town native Ann Branson was found dead in her basement with 97 stab wounds and massive blows to the skull. In Madisonville, where there hadn't been a murder in 20 years, this crime was unimaginable. I am here today with Mary Kinney Branson and Jack Branson, who are authors of a book very fascinating book called Murder in Mayberry. And uh, we're going to be discussing that today. So uh, welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's start. Let's kind of start at the beginning before we even dive in. Um, who, who came up with the title? Was that a publisher thing or was that you guys? That was, that was us. And that was actually just from frustration. Uh, I was, uh, we, we were both in Kentucky uh, at, right after the murder. And I called my boss and he asked me how things were going. And I said, it's murder in Mayberry. And that stuck with us because <laughs> we we found this little town that was very much like Mayberry, that they had never worked a murder case. No one on homicide had ever worked a murder case. And we were very frustrated with the pace of things and the way things were going. So uh, for the folks who don't know, this murder case is very close to you guys. It was a family member who was murdered uh, in this small town. So let's get a little, before we get into that, because it's very important uh, in this kind of case, the background of both of you. So let's start with the, well, first of all, you guys can tell me about the fact, because it says it right in the book, you were childhood sweethearts. Yes. So uh, high school sweetheart, I didn't even have a date in high school, so I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't even go there. But you, uh, and so you did, uh, both of you also grew up in this town where yes. the murder happened. And what was the name, right. of the name of the town? Madison, Madisonville, Kentucky. Kentucky. Population, I looked it up yesterday, is of the 2000, or the 2010 census was about 19,000. So this happened in what year? 20, 2003, so it's a pretty much similar uh, size. It didn't either explode yes. or uh, have a grand exodus. So uh, around the under 20,000. So that gives people the sense of the town. Jack, tell us a little bit about your background. My background is 33 years in law enforcement, 20 years as a federal agent. I was a special agent with the Department of the Treasury back 
starting in 83. Prior to that, I was a deputy sheriff. Subsequent to my federal retirement, I worked for our local Georgia Police Department for several years, and uh, now we're retired, full retirement. Hung my badge up 10 years ago. At the time of the, uh, the murder in uh, Madisonville, you were not living there. Where, where were you, or were you? Same as we are now, North Georgia. North We've been Georgia. in Georgia for well over 30 years. And so uh, you weren't there when, obviously weren't there when it happened and you were contacted there. Yes. So the person who was brutally murdered uh, was uh, Anna May, if you use the full name, Anna May Branson. That's right. Jack, who was what uh, relation to you? She was my mother's sister, but she was actually my double aunt because my mother and Anna May married my dad and his brother, sisters married brothers. At the, at the time of the, uh, the murders, Anna May was a widow. That's right. Uh, and not remarried. And, but she and her husband, this is going, this is right out of Mayberry. Tell us what, uh, what their, their claim to fame and a little bit of money was. My aunt and uncle, Anna May and Carol Branson, owned the Dairy Queen in Madisonville for 35 years, from 1950 to 1985. And they had no children, and my parents and I lived with them the first two years of my life, and they were like a second set of parents to me. So since they had no children, I got free Dairy Queen all the time. <laughs> when we were dating, we got free food. But uh, we, that lived, was... we lived one whole winter when we first got married on hot dogs <laughs> from the Dairy Queen. I was going to say, what a cheap date. Hey, come on, Mary, let's go to the Dairy Queen. Well, can't we go to that nice restaurant up there? No, no, come on, let's get some burgers and fries. Well, it was, it was a cheap date, but they became wealthy with that little Dairy Queen. Actually millionaires because of this small town and the, and then they were great investors and Anne had how many rent houses? About 45 rental properties, houses that she rented out as her hobby and then also of course a money maker. But when we were teenagers there was no McDonald's or franchise fest other than the Dairy Queen, <laughs> other than a few locally owned small places. So that was the place where the teenagers hung out Circle the Dairy Queen, circle the Queen, as they used to call it, and that was the teenage hangout. So you guys were you just at home, or were you on a business trip or something when the phone call came? I was at a, at a national meeting in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, I was getting ready to speak, and uh, I went into the restroom to fix my hair, and my phone went off, and um, it was my mother-in-law. And I absolutely knew that she would not call me in the middle of the day unless it was a real emergency. I sensed something was wrong. And I went outside and it was bitter cold even in Alabama, it was January. And I went outside to receive whatever news it was. And I thought maybe one of our children or, or Jack and I, you know, someone was hurt. My mother-in-law said, uh, Mary, uh, someone broke into Anne's home and Anne is gone. And my first thought is they've kidnapped her. But I realized that it was just not possible for her to say the words. And after a while, I realized what she was saying. Uh, Jack, uh, who uh, ultimately found the body? Her, uh, she had a boyfriend at the time who was a retired eye surgeon. 
and he lived about 50 miles away and they had an appointment that day together and he tried to knock on the door and no one answered so he went over to the first baptist church across the street from our house to call the police and the police came and uh the police knew to call my uncle earl winston anime's younger brother because he knew where a hidden key to the house was so they went in the house and the police went in and earl and dr bob who uh, was the boyfriend dr bob Fenneman, who's now deceased but uh, Earl actually went down the basement steps and found the body and went back up and told the police who were in the other parts of the house searching it. Once Earl saw the lower, her lower torso laying on the basement floor, he went back up and told the police and they sealed off the basement as a crime scene and asked Earl and Dr. Bob to go out and wait in the car. Jack, as soon as you found out, um what is going through your mind? Uh, did you, did you, were you more a family person or were you more a law person at that point? At that point, my investigator side kicked in and I started immediately wondering who the suspects were. And I talked with Anna Mae and my mother every Saturday morning. That was part of my routine. I'd call each of them for 15 minutes or so and see what was going on and their, how they were doing. I knew about some of Anna Mae's renters. She had a crazy renters, how, what, how she referred to him. A fellow that thought he had ghosts up in the attic and uh, he would call her in the middle of the night and she'd have to go and you know, calm him down and so forth. And uh, she had expressed a little bit of fear about that fellow and he immediately came to mind as well as maybe some of her other renters that I think for the most part she had good renters but they came to our house to pay for their monthly rent. So I knew that they had access to the house, but I also called the police department. I knew a captain on the police department and uh, I asked him what he could tell me. I said, was it forced entry? And he said, no. And uh, she, he told me she was stabbed multiple times. At that point, I didn't know how many times. And uh, I suggested to him that he check out this crazy renter and, uh, a few other things that came to mind, but immediately my, investiga my investigative side kicked in and I was still an active federal agent at the time, I offered any resources that were available to me to the police department to assist. And uh, Mary and I went to Madisonville the next day and our first stop was the police department. We had, I knew I had friends, fellow agents who would volunteer their personal time to assist in doing surveillance, anything they needed done. I offered up every resource that was available to me on checking backgrounds, anything that I could do. And uh, I was pretty much rebuffed. Now, in the beginning, of course, in anything like this, especially without forced entry in a small town, uh, you're gonna look to people closely related. That's why they started with the renter. So uh, I would guess then the police started, you know, going through family members to, to question them. Is that correct? Yes. In fact, even family members had gone through our mind on the trip back to Kentucky. Uh, my aunt's younger sister, my other aunt was Grace Winston, who's now deceased. But she, Grace had terminal cancer at the time, and we thought maybe her mind had been affected by her disease and she was a a possible suspect everyone is a suspect 
in a murder situation, no matter who it, who the victim is. And we knew where we were. We knew we had not done it, but everyone else. Except your mother. <laughs> yeah, except, except my mother. Right. right. Well, that's true. When we stopped by the police department, we found out uh, more information. Of course, it was not forced entry. Nothing was taken that they knew of from the house. Uh, she was found on the floor of her basement, stabbed. At that time, they were still saying multiple times stabbed. And they asked us if we knew of anything that might be missing from the house and everything we could come up with, except I knew that she had a, a revolver and the police had not been able to, at that point to find the revolver. And they assured me they had searched the house and they could not find it. Well, later on, it, but it was in the house and I found where it was, where she had it hidden through Dr. Bob. But uh, they said that the police told us on the first time we stopped by the department that they were gonna be questioning family members that lived in the local area. And that's what they did. After the funeral, especially, they started uh, we found out from various cousins and so that they had been questioned. When I, to show the, the it's again, the, the story is recounted in the book, to show the um, frustration with the police, tell us a little bit more about the finding the gun story. Okay. As I said, they had searched the house. They told me they could not find the weapon. And then when a weapon's missing, even though she had not been shot, it's still a crucial piece of evidence. You know, I knew I'd seen the weapon. I knew what type it was. It was a 22 Smith and Wesson revolver, stub nose. And uh, Anna May had told me in one of our weekly calls just a week or two before she was killed that she didn't know anything about weapons. I had shown her how to use it, but how to load it, but she had forgotten. And she said she and Dr. Bob, who also didn't know anything about weapons, looked down the barrel in the cylinder to see if it was loaded or not. They couldn't figure out how to open the cylinder. So I knew Dr. Bob knew where the gun was hidden. And I, asked, I called him on the phone after the police kept insisting they couldn't find it. And he told me it was behind a book on our bookshelf. I walked over, pulled the book out, and there it was. And I was so frustrated, not only at being left out of knowing any more details. The police were obviously withholding information from us. And that was frustrating to me as an investigator. And I called and got the voicemail of the uh, captain that was a detective captain. And uh, I was pretty upset with him. And I said, we found the gun in five minutes by calling Dr. Bob, as I had instructed him to do, advised him to do. And I said, we found it. And uh, then, I, you know, I was pretty frustrated. Um, and at the, the, the risk of sounding ghoulish, but more for the, um, the importance of the savagery and the overkill of this horrific crime, um, how many uh, stab wounds were uh, established by the ME? There was uh, 97 stab wounds. And when I found that out, I was talking to our who turned out to be a very good ally, Kentucky State Police Detective Ben Walcott. And uh, actually, it was, almost, it was over a year later that I found out those details. It was in March 2004. Mary had a conference in Nashville, and I went to Madisonville to meet with Ben. We had talked on, telephonically, but I'd never met him. And uh, we had already sent the story to America's Most Wanted. And Ben Walcott, after he found out we had done that, 
the police did also. But we met and had a cordial meeting over a cup of coffee at a fast food place. And when Ben told me how many times she'd been stabbed, it just overwhelmed me. I, I was assuming 10 to 15 times, which is still a lot, but 97 times. And her, uh, she was almost, uh, apparently, the whole front of her throat was slit and just stabbed overkill. I mean, many, many times overkill. And bludgeoned. Bludgeoned. Her head was bludgeoned in. And uh, that was uh, that was a long two-hour drive back to Nashville by myself to mull all that over. And uh, that was pretty tough. Eventually, the, um, the authorities turned their attention to Russell, Anna May's uh, nephew. Is that correct? Yes. Russell Winstead is Earl Winstead's son. My first cousin, Anna May's nephew. Uh, he's quite a bit younger than us. He's 17 years younger. And uh, we never knew him really other than a, a as a child, a boy. We didn't know him really as an adult. And uh, we found out just uh, two months or so or less after the murder that he was the suspect. And, uh, uh, you know, he failed a polygraph. We had a bureau friend who was a polygrapher. We actually hired him. He was retired, went down and polygraphed Russell Winston as well. And he failed the polygraph even worse the second time. But he failed it as about as bad as you can fail a polygraph. And he, he had a gambling addiction. She had even told me about the story that she was told by Russell before she died in one of our phone calls. She said uh, that Russell had asked for a loan, I don't know, twenty thirty thousand dollars $30,000 or so, to allegedly buy some mine equipment and resell it and make some money. Well, she had never paid her back. And just a week or so before she was killed, she said she was concerned about Russell. And uh, uh, at that point, I didn't know anything about his gambling, and she didn't either. But he, she said he kept borrowing money from her and not paying it back. And we're talking big money, ten, twenty thousand 20000 at a time. Now, initially, was he ever charged before he ran? No. Well, he was indicted, and he fled right at the time of indictment, which was uh, May of 2003. Grace Winstead, my younger aunt, died of cancer just four months after Anna Mae was killed. And uh, we went back for the funeral and Earl was nervously waiting. Russell was supposed to be one of the pallbearers, never showed up, that's the day he left. They had it pre-planned down to a T and Russell had, done his research to see what countries did not extradite back to the United States. Costa Rica was his choice, and he uh, had flown out. He flew out the day of Grace's funeral. Uh, clearly, uh, his father was, you know, either with phone calls or information, he was certainly aiding and abetting. Yes, definitely. He was uh, sending, after Russell went to Costa Rica, Earl, got people to wire money down there, always less than 10,000, so that it would not be a currency transaction report, CTR, filed. 
and uh, Earl was indicted for that. And, and Russell lived in a gated community with no visible means of support, and he gambled all day long. San Jose, Costa Rica. And because uh, Russell had become a fugitive, um, the case actually was uh, featured on America's Most Wanted, I understand. Well, uh, it was Jack, well, actually it was our son first, our son Dave, and he, he said, this needs to be on America's Most Wanted, you need to do this. And, and so Jack went ahead and prepared the information. But uh, they came to our house. August 2004. Uh, and it, it was on there, and then they did it again, didn't they? Yes, it was on twice, and the second time struck gold. Mm -hmm. Someone called, in fact, five people, I think, five different people called America's Most Wanted, said, we know where we've seen him gamble at the Horseshoe Casino in San Jose. But at, even before that, <laughs> uh, Jack had a friend who was an agent who was, was in Costa Rica, and he was at the casino, and he saw Russell. And he went to the embassy and he said, this, this murderer's there, you know, there's a warrant for him. And they said, do you know how many murderers we have down here? <laughs> and, and they didn't do anything. It's, it's a place where people do go to hide. Yes. So how did he eventually uh, get picked up and taken away and taken back to the United States? He was going to the casino, and they realized he was there. He was, they, they had found him. And uh, he went one day, and it was earlier in the day, and uh, he, we saw the surveillance video on America's Most Wanted, and he walks in as though he owns the place. He jokes with all of the girls who work there and everything, and, and it's, just, uh, it's just his home all day long. Later, he comes back, and they're waiting for him, and it was actually the Costa Rican police yes. who captured him. So he's brought back and he's, he's uh, tried. Do you, get, do you get to, or uh, were you interested in actually confronting him after that, after he came back? Did you ever have any face-to-face -face conversation? No, and I didn't really want to. Uh, at that point, to me, he was a scumbag. That, you know, and as a law enforcement officer and a family member, I wanted the death penalty. And that was off the table. Life without parole was off the table as part of the uh, extradition of, agreement. Extradition treaties. Yeah. But we were there every day for the trial. Uh, I was a, I knew I'd be a witness, so I wasn't allowed in the courtroom, but I stayed in the war room. I was work, we both worked very closely with the district attorney at that time, who's now a judge, David Massimore, and uh, Ben Walcott, the state police detective. We were in. From the in like phlegm from the very beginning of the trial. And uh, Mary was in the courtroom every day. It was about a two week trial. And, and I took notes for Jack for later, which ended up being a lot of what the, was in the book. Because we decided to write a book because we knew someone would, and we wanted the, the correct uh, and accurate story. That's the same reason there's been three uh, TV programs about the murder. And uh, a lot of relatives didn't want to participate. And, and we didn't either, except that we knew that they would go ahead with those programs anyway. And we wanted to speak for anime. Was there any physical evidence that tied him to the... No DNA, no fingerprints. And in a house, it was a, a fairly large house. And they went through that entire house and only found one fingerprint. 
up in a bedroom. That house had been cleaned better than the average person could clean, certainly better than I clean my house. And this, uh, which made us think, you know, and, and had, a, um, had a housekeeper. And then we immediately suspected that she had somehow helped to clean up that house because I don't believe Russell could have cleaned that house as well as it was cleaned. And at one point there was, uh, I believe it was a vase or something that uh, they pulled out of a cabinet. And um, this housekeeper who is also now deceased grabbed it from the, uh, the investigators and it broke. Yes. And we figured then she thought, whoops, that's something I forgot to wipe clean. So then what was the uh, driving uh, uh, force behind proving his guilt? I honestly believe it was an excellent prosecutor. I, I believe David Massimore presented that case so clearly. There truly was only circumstantial evidence, but he put that together so well. You know, Jack's had a lot of trials that he's been involved in and I've sat through you know some of those with him but I've never seen a case presented so well as this small town prosecutor did. What then was the theory of the case, the theory of the murder? Russell was trying to borrow more money to uh, gamble with. Nana May had had enough. She didn't know about the gambling but she said uh, I've loaned you all I can loan you and uh, the night before the, the murder, Russell went to her house and she agreed to give him a check for $12,000. And uh, she wrote, she kept records of what in her book that the investigators found of how much she gave Russell. And she, it's dated, she was killed January 12th, 2003. So I guess it was January 10th or 11th. She said, I, I gave Russell $9,000. He gave me a check for $12,000. The theory is that he knew that check was going to bounce and he knew that she was taking it to the bank on Monday. She was killed on a Sunday night. And his wife worked at the bank. Yes, his Russell's wife worked at the bank and he knew it was all over if that $12,000 check bounced. He went to the house to retrieve the check. By the way, the check was never found never cashed, never found. So that's wherever the murder weapon is, that check is probably torn up and- In the bottom uh, of uh, some river or lake somewhere. But that's, that's why Russell went to her house to get the check back. And when she wouldn't do it, he lost it and just killed her. But uh, he went, uh, you know, I think he, he was prepared in case she didn't because he brought yes. a weapon with him. Yes. No, in fact, they found a knife, a collector's knife that he had that they finally found that it had been washed with bleach and it fit the wounds. Yes, it did fit the wounds. Did they have any idea what the bludgeoning object was? Uh, the only thing that they surmised is that maybe she was running away from him or going down the steps into the basement. She was hit from behind, which was a fatal blow more than likely. Was it a tire tool? Yeah, um, it was a mining pick with a hammer on one end and a sharp end on the other. Ben Walcott brought a facsimile of that type of weapon to show the jurors. And then the knife, of course, was separate stab wounds after the fact. And, and Russell was an engineer for, the, for a mine, a coal yes. mine. 
Yes. And what um, what was the defense? Um, uh, did they just try to to say this? You know, that's all circumstantial. It doesn't work. Yes. They... No DNA. There was there was basically no defense. They had Russell come up and say hello to the jury and say, hi, glad to meet you. And it's like, look at this nice guy. And he's nice looking and he was young and he was clean cut. And uh, they just presented him like that. And then they tried to attack other witnesses, but they really had nothing. They had absolutely yeah. nothing. But Russell didn't look like a killer and he didn't act like a killer. And uh, he was one of the least people that I would have thought would have have done anything like that but that night that he murdered Anna Mae he went to church it was a Sunday and he taught youth at his church and then he took his children back to his ex-wife's and then he murdered Anna Mae so he had this double life that people saw him as a church-going clean-cut mining engineer and so it was very very hard for us to see or anyone to see that he could be. And I think that the uh, the defense attorneys thought that they could just, he just looked nice. And we, uh, the, uh, the prosecutor did talk to some of the jurors afterward. And they said that, that they saw he, he was smiling at the women in, in the jury. He was trying to make connections with them. And when they gave their sentence or their, um, not their sentence, or their, um, Verdict. Right. Verdict. <laughs> oh. when, when they gave their verdict, um, they did not want to walk past him. They had requested that they walk out and not walk past him because he had been making so much eye contact with the women in the jury. Uh, Jack, let me ask you, in your experience, again, like you say, overkill, uh, have you experienced murders of, um, even if they're semi, you know, uh, premeditated, I've got to do this thing, I'm going to rob someone, that becomes that that personally vicious never have i seen a murder that vicious uh, or even read of anything like that uh you know she was a small woman she was maybe five three 120 pounds and if i mean just looking at it from the aspect of how much was required to kill her not very much 85 years old and for overkill like that, it was obviously an act of rage. And we've already discussed the, the cleaning up, but you know, when someone's stabbed 97 times, there's gonna be a lot of blood and a lot of gore. There was nothing there except blood on a freezer that she had fallen against. A little bit of blood that wasn't cleaned off. It was that totally cleaned up crime scene. There was a shower in the basement that my uncle, uh, who was already deceased at that time, used to use. And in fact, when we spent the night with Anna Mae, I used a shower while Mary uh, got ready in the bathrooms upstairs. And uh, there was evidence that shower had been used that night. And I and believe there was a wash machine in the basement as well. Yes, a washing machine right by the shower. Everything could have just been dropped in and washed. Has uh, Russell ever spoken um, to a family member, to the press, to anyone um, since his um, conviction and incarceration? We don't know of anything he has said about being, you know, admitting what he did. We do know, we've heard that my uncle Earl has gone to see him and probably goes to see him, I'm assuming, regularly. Uh, since Earl was using Anna Mae's money that he inherited to sponsor 
Russell's lifestyle in Costa Rica, I'm sure he's, uh, you know, got money set back for whenever he's eligible for parole. He's eligible for parole. The very earliest he could get out would be 10 years from this year, 2030. Uh, I don't know if we'll still be alive then, but our children and grandchildren will be there at the hearing to try to keep him locked up. And, and not out of vindictiveness, no. but we truly believe that he would do it again. Yes. I don't think there's been any, any uh, I don't think he's ever told anybody that he did it or expressed remorse. And he's still gambling in prison. We did hear that. And that he feels that he's a bit of a celebrity because of the TV shows and all that have uh, been produced. So there seems to be no remorse. It's a picture that will never go away. So we've come to the part of our program I call promo time. So aside from writing the very uh, fantastic and personal murder in Mayberry, um, I'm, I understand you guys collaborate on other stuff. Some of them. At first, we, we were asked to write another true crime book, and we wrote a book called Delayed Justice, and it's about cold cases. And that's a really a fascinating book. It's published by Prometheus. And uh, I think uh, anyone who's interested in true crime would appreciate that book. But I think after what we went through ourselves, that book was so painful to write, the second one, because we actually lived those crimes with those investigators and, and the victims. And when we interviewed the victims, we were so exhausted and we could not get them off our mind. And so that was the last of the true crime books we wrote. We also wrote a fiction crime book called Terminal Justice. And that's a really interesting book. If anybody's interested in that, it's Terminal Justice. This was Jack's idea. That was a fun book to write. We wrote it on a car trip to California. Basically, I would toss the ideas around and Mary's the writer and she would write them. You know, and it was really fun. Uh, we, it's a, it's, plot is about a group of retired agents who are terminally ill and they uh it's kind of like the movie the star chamber they look for times when the system of ju justice system didn't work and they take out the scumbags <laughs> and when i say retired agents they're not elderly they were active agents who could all contract a terminal disease and that's explained in the book and that's part of the plot and uh but they all are distinct personalities and they're a conglomerate of agents i actually worked with myself included in the characters and it's a really interesting character study so folks out there if we've piqued your interest uh in any of mary or jack's works um they do not have a website but you certainly can uh find their books uh by just googling murder in mayberry and all their work, of course, will come up. Uh, you can get the books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I actually got mine at a library, of all things. So uh, again, uh, these works are wonderful, and you really should uh, uh, get yourself a couple of them for some summer COVID reading. And so, Mary Kinney Branson and Jack Branson, high school sweethearts and partners in crime books, 
I want to wish you continued health and good fortune. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you. And to my listeners around the world, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and that you'll uh, tell your friends. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can leave them at my website on my email. And the website address is www.murdermostfoul.com. Murdermostfoul, all one word, no spaces and no caps. But before I let you go, I'd like to read a short passage from the end of the book, Murder in Mayberry. Um, and this is an account of um, the night after the verdict had been rendered. And Jack and Mary stopped by the Dairy Queen, which had been owned by Anne and her husband, Carol. I sat with my head down no longer able to fight back the exhaustion. After a moment, I raised my head and squinted into the glare of the fluorescent lights. Just before my eyes focused, I thought I saw a dim figure up near the counter, a woman wearing a black cape with a leopard skin collar. The sparkle of diamonds obscured the details of her face, but I could see that she had thick, dark hair and she was beautiful. No scars or injuries, no trauma to her body, no blood stains or torn clothing. She smiled slightly at Jack and gave him a slow, subtle wink. Then, moving so gracefully, she seemed to glide. Anne left in peace. <laughs>